Welcome, one and all, to the electrifying realm where passion meets precision, where strategy collides with skill. Welcome to Breaking Lines, a new football podcast that goes beyond the scores and delves into the hearts and minds of the beautiful game. I'm your host, Dave Carolan, joined by the astute and insightful Gary Rabbit as we embark on a journey to dissect the highs, the lows, and everything in between within the world of football. In this podcast, we're not just here to narrate the matches, we're here to unravel the intricacies of the sport, offering you a front row seat to the behind the scenes world of the football manager and the backroom staff, where we reflect on the tactical masterstrokes, the unpredictable narratives that make football the global spectacle that it is. Combining my background in performance and sports science and Gary's first-hand experience as a seasoned manager and player, Breaking Lines promises to be your go-to source for insights into the challenging world of team management, an immersive experience that transcends the boundaries of the pitch. So whether you're a diehard fan seeking in-depth analysis or a casual observer eager to learn more, join us every episode as we peek behind the dressing room doors of the world's most beloved sport. Get ready for passionate discussions, expert insights, and a celebration of the sheer brilliance that unfolds on the hallowed turf. This is Breaking Lines, where the game is more than just a result. It's the stories waiting to be told. So, Gary, after many, many months of planning, we're finally in front of the mics and ready to record the first episode here of Breaking Lines, uh, a project long, long in the making. But uh, the genesis of this is, uh, is is something to be told, I suppose, of where this idea came from, why we've ended up in front of the mic running our own podcast. I think two nearly 50-year-olds drinking red wine on a Thursday evening in London, um, await, awaiting our fate at the weekend. I think there's probably probably the start of it, Dave, I would imagine, wouldn't it? Um, you know, I think, we, I think we talked about it briefly on the first glass. The second glass started to get a little bit more in-depth and quite serious. And I think some of the ideas got more and more varied, didn't they? More and more random, but... Um, I think they become more full-bodied as we, <laughs> we, we got into uh, whether it was Malbec or... or it was good Malbec, wasn't it? It, it was good it Malbec was by good. the sounds of it. Yeah, I suppose it was just our passion, isn't it, for, for trying to get better at what we do and telling stories about what we'd seen over our years, many, many years and many hundreds and thousands of games probably, that we, we thought, why, why don't we share this stuff and why don't we take the discussions that we were having on a balcony and, uh, and share them with everyone else? Yeah, and I think we've we've worked together for a long time as well, haven't we? So we've got a, a, an understanding of how each other work. We've obviously both seen some of the ups and downs of uh, some some of the um, some of the clubs that we've been at and some of the leagues that we've played in. Um, so I think it's a it's one where you know, look, I think we can obviously give hopefully a unique perspective, a unique uh, behind the scenes look at. Um, some of the things that the fans don't get to see, and I think it's it's nice for us, hopefully, to be able to to share that with our um, with our own opinions thrown in as well. And and I think as both avid podcast listeners, we've seen many, many, or listened to many, many different types of podcasts. Whether it's something that's coming from a player's perspective, or a fan's perspective, or a pundit's perspective, and we hadn't really come across anyone who's been knee deep in the weeds of actually delivering this stuff and trying to prepare teams and dealing with the day-to-day issues that we we come across, you know, whether it's dealing with players or preparing training or preparing for games or whatever happens after games. I suppose that's the, the bit that people probably don't really hear about as much. No, and I think for us, it's just the norm, isn't it? I suppose it's just trying to bring that norm to life for people who don't get to see that you know um, you know that's our day-to-day job and it's the day-to-day things we probably take a little bit for granted but actually you know for the for the um, for the football fans out there hopefully to get a little bit of a, a slice of what the action looks like behind the dressing room door if you like uh, or maybe I'm, I might need to rephrase that one um, <laughs> but I think like you say we listen to podcasts because you've got no choice have you you're driving for three hours probably sat in London traffic for an hour of it um, so yeah so we've certainly uh, we've certainly had our fair share and hopefully hopefully we can add to that for the for the people also stuck on the M11 at uh, seven o'clock on a Monday morning or three o'clock in the morning after <laughs> driving back from Swansea across country as whatever the case may be but yeah I suppose uh, we, we also don't want it to be too dry either don't we? we we've got plenty of stories to go with the issues that we'll we'll talk about and that we see come up across the many episodes that we hope to record but I suppose there's a lot of 
experiences and stories we've had and seen funny things, seen strange things and seen quite concerning things even. Yeah, and I think one of our main things as well is not to try to name too many people. Of course, most football books, football podcasts, of course, you know, you can you can dig a few ex-teammates out or you can dig a few uh, members of staff out. But I think the key for us is to, to give that behind-the-scenes anal- analysis. Like you say, hopefully have a little bit of fun. It's important, I think, we have a little bit of fun doing it. That was why why we wanted to start it, wasn't it? So, And, and hopefully don't incriminate too many people, but who knows? Well, of course, if you are one of those people that has worked with us in the past and you want to keep your name out of this podcast, please send Stamped a dreamt envelope with, with cash in it. And uh, I'm sure we can keep your name out of the spotlight. But yeah, that's a little bit of the background behind why we've decided to to take to the mic as such. And uh, hopefully you enjoy the content. It'd be great to get your feedback um, when you listen to the episodes and let us know things that you like, things that you, you rather we didn't talk about or send us some questions. You know, I'm sure you guys listening will have thoughts and questions about what you see goes on on a Saturday on the, on the pitches of the of the world when you're watching football but maybe want to know well why would the manager make a certain decision why do we train players in certain ways so we'd love to get your your questions and your queries come in to us here we go welcome to Breaking Lines podcast Well, all well here on a bright sunny day in London and uh, nice to get um, out of Norfolk um, not that I don't like Norfolk, but nice to get down into the city again. Where God, we what spent so much time. What a start. You're going to insult in the whole city of, well, the whole county. Not even a city, the whole county of Norfolk. That could have been a, a really interesting two-footed challenge right at the start of the podcast. Yeah, well, I'm sure at some stage that'll be referred to VAR. And uh, it's, it's, again, not been a, an auspicious week for VAR, has it? Again? Wow. Wow. If you're Gary O'Neill or if you're Eddie Howe, you're ruining the uh, introduction of VAR, aren't you? Certainly. Um, yeah, it's it's causing a lot of controversy. At the moment, if you're Howard Webb, there must be a part of you that doesn't know where to look next because, um, you know, something that was designed to simplify football um, and refereeing to a certain degree has actually made it far more complicated, hasn't it? So, yeah, it's, uh, it's getting a hot topic of conversation. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to be every two or three minutes that we're sat down discussing about another game and we're discussing another VAR controversy. And it, it's got to be difficult for managers. Obviously, one week, a VAR decision goes in a favour. Next week, it goes against them. So how do you pitch that as a manager? Like when it, when it goes for you versus when it goes against you, it's it's not an, an easy thing to balance, is it? No, I think sometimes if they go against you, they can not cost you necessarily points or the game. And I think that's a challenge, isn't it? I think when they're so extreme, when you look at some of the cases recently, <clears throat> let's take Gary O'Neill's situation, you know, it feels like every single week a decision has gone against Wolves. And, and not just a decision where a man, you can clearly hear it's a manager just venting his frustration because A, he's lost the game. And B, um, you know, he's had the decision to go against him, but they're clearly affecting the game, and they're clearly been main. Well, I'd say clearly on in the in the opinion of most people, um, in and out of football, in football players, coaches, managers, fans, ex referees most of the decisions have been deemed to have been wrong. And I think that's the challenge then. And I think actually, you know, someone like him, he, he, he's he's handled it pretty well because it would be very, very easy to say the wrong thing. Um, you know, do an Arteta, shall we say. Yes. Well, I suppose for every VAR controversy we would get, we're probably also ignoring a lot of decisions that they possibly get right as well. And is it any different from the old days when a refereeing decision, it, it was generally accepted at the game and then it was later on on match of the day when it got played back in glorious Technicolor with all the video replays that it then became controversial. Whereas nowadays we've just shortened that timeline. Like everything in modern society, the time between us seeing the thing and us getting a instant reaction to it means that essentially we're now taking that match of the day uh, decision that was seen five, six hours later, normally when you'd been to the pub and maybe you had had a couple of pints and you got home and you saw the decision that you didn't know anything about at the game and now you were angry. I think the VAR situation, I think, is really interesting, isn't it? Because... um 
you know, I think that the, the problem is, firstly, it's not as much fun, is it? It's not, it doesn't fit modern society to say, do you know what? Let's look at the ones he got right. Let's look at all those decisions right. And there's no doubt, statistically, yes. they're probably getting more decisions right than wrong. But the problem is because it, the expectation of the modern football fan and everybody involved in football or everyone who loves watching football, which we all, we're all passionate football fans, aren't we? Um, ultimately. And we're expecting, we are expecting the introduction of VAR to essentially eradicate any mistake. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, I mean, you know, lofty as that may be, those <laughs> expectations, that's what we're hoping for, aren't we? Yeah. We're hoping that, that every single decision is right and unfortunately when people get them wrong or when there's three or four that are wrong that lingers and it feels like every decision is wrong and I think that's like you like you alluded to I think that's the challenge um, you know we probably are being very very unfair on officiating at the but, but but is that not the case that you want the decisions right in your favour and there's two teams so as soon as of course you've got somebody who's saying it's a terrible decision you've got somebody else who's willing to accept it yeah, li- listen, you're never willing to accept it unless it's for your team. Of course, <laughs> why would you? This is football, this is passion, this is what we want to do. We all no, want to no, win. No, no, good of the games. We all want to win. No, sportsmanship, forget about oh. all those things. Oh, okay. It's about winning, isn't it? And about three points. Yes. And, and um, you know, it's about going out with your mates later or going back home and, and being elated about the result. And, and unfortunately, a lot of these things seem to be taking enjoyment, the enjoyment out of it. It's not just the results, is it? it's a stop-start nature of football. You know, I, I think what's happening now is the, the game's too fragmented the game's too broken up and unfortunately that flow and excitement of celebrations and moments in the game yeah. that spontaneity just seems to be seems to be going doesn't it well is it potentially a case for example in rugby union it's the the, the TMO or in cricket the, um, the the third umpire whatever it is um they've been a lot more mature in their kind of time that they've been in existence. They've had a longer kind of run in before, um, before they've got to a point where it's like accepted that how those processes run. If you look at a rugby union match, for example, they process it to go through to get to decisions is quite different to what we're seeing in football. It's very public. Everybody can see what's going on. Everyone can hear the decision-making. Do you think it's also the lack of, um, input that people are getting at games so fans in the stadium don't know what's going on they can't see anything they're not hearing anything in which case if there's a two or three minute delay then they're none the wiser why the goal is or isn't going to be given or whether a penalty is or isn't going to be given well we spoke about it earlier didn't we you know we sat having a coffee earlier and literally um you know, we were talking about why is it so complicated? What is so complicated about it? You know, and 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 I think you know at the moment in football, it's this is what it feels like to me um, when you're listening to or watching a game. It, it stops. No one knows what's happening. You hear the commentators say they're checking for an early incident handball. Now they're checking for offside. Now actually they're checking for an initial offside, not just the player that scored. So it feels like they're they're actually act, and obviously they have to to a certain degree, they're actually actively looking for a number of things to check and it just takes so much time. You mentioned about rugby and you spoke about um, rugby union and the way it works and and maybe you you can describe that, but it just feels so much clearer and so, so, so much less protracted the whole process yeah I, th- I think you're right um and generally speaking i think there's probably a culture in in maybe in rugby where people accept the decisions of the officials a lot more and maybe in in football we've always had the referees as the people who are almost ruining the game or rather than enabling the game they're, they're kind of ruining the game by getting decisions wrong and we know statistically as you said like they get 95% or maybe that's the the PGMOL telling us they got a good, good side propaganda <laughs> good propaganda yeah yeah keep keep telling them it's 95% <laughs> there must be a league table somewhere of decisions that VAR have gone right and wrong for teams oh, like, a league table of refs Oh, league table of refs. That would be really, that would be interesting though, wouldn't it? Yeah, I I think there may be bias involved in that, depending on A, results and B, personalities, you know. Possibly. Yeah, it's it's not going to be an easy fix this though, is it? Because you even see it since the weekend, you've got 
one manager saying VAR should be binned and you've got last night another manager in the championship saying we should have VAR in the championship. Would you have VAR in the championship? Uh, 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 well, not not on the basis of what I've seen in the Premier League. I mean, there's always been this, you know, could we have something like a VAR light, uh, which has been discussed, I think, quite quite vigorously within yeah. the within the sort of powers that be um you know a lot of the high level meetings of you know we can't make it cost the cost of var is absolutely extortionate um and to to, to bring that into the championship and then potentially fan that out down the league because obviously that's what will happen in the end you know because it's a professional game and um you know you could potentially argue that now five leagues in in england are are a professional because the conference, yes. I would imagine, is probably virtually 100% professional teams now. Um, so VAR Lite was a, a, a cheaper version, a shorter version, a, a probably a more simplistic version. Um, but you're going to get the same problems. And, and, and I'm not sure, um, just like the added time, I'm not sure these things are actually... They're designed to help the product. This is a big thing. They're designed to, to um, you know, the stakeholders in the game have pushed these, um, these technologies yep. to help um, with a fan experience and, and to help the game. And I think the challenge with it is, if you actually strip it down, a lot of these things don't feel like they're actually helping the game or helping the product because that's what it's about. It's about the product. There's so much money involved. And I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's helping helping the product at all. One of the things I think that has always interested both of us is the psychology of teams, like not just how we play, but the, the psyche of getting players ready, getting players prepared and putting them out there to play. But um Across the season, like the, the part of the season that we're in now, we're like 17, 18, 19 games into the season. You can be on an incredible run of form or a terrible run of form or really inconsistent. I mean, that's how, how do you approach that? Let's let's start with the easiest one that probably will jump into everybody's mind, which is you're on a winning run. Does, does winning just take care of itself as a manager or as a team? Yeah, I don't mean anything takes care of itself, but I think to a certain degree, when you're on a good when you're in when you're in flow as we speak in, in sort of top level sport, you know, where everything just seems to be working seamlessly and players just seem to be full of confidence. And I think to a certain degree you can continue to you can continue to follow the same process, the same training methods, the same you can keep the same team a lot. And and, and teams do build confidence and teams do go, you know, you speak to players and they do go out there feeling like you just know you'd win. You know, we just know we would win. And and I don't mean you'd ever get to that point as a manager because I think you turn up every game not sh- I don't mean you ever know what's going to happen, of course. Well, no one does, but, yeah. you know, you have a good feeling. I think as a manager, you always fear the worst to a certain degree that a good run's going to come to an end or, a, you know, or the flip side where, you know, a bad run, you know, is also going to come to an end. You have that, you have that feeling sometimes. But... But I think players' confidence, you know, you, you you have opportunities at times to to build that. And I think that's the key. You know, you have moments where you can build it. Let's let's talk about, you know, some of the moments we've had in games where you win a game, you know the team's played a lot of matches, you know there's a free week ahead. You know, you might be playing on a Sunday the next game. You might go Saturday to Sunday. So you know you've kind of got an extra day in there. And it's so easy sometimes to go at the end of a game when you've won in that dressing room to go. It's a really easy trip. Right, lads? See you Tuesday. And and I've never heard, you know, three words be greeted with so much excitement. The joy of the, play- of the players and staff. Well, it is though, isn't it? Yeah, because, it is. you know, as soon as you say that, suddenly there's such a great thing and then I've done it before so many times and you've witnessed it where you you say it and almost just walk out the dressing room leave a little clangor you know you drop a name in a conversation um you know you you leave it there walk out and you can tell me but the players afterwards there is such a buzz in the dressing room but it's moments like that but you know will carry you forward over the next period of time so There's little tricks, but uh, but you've seen it. You know what what the players like. You know because it's there's a few very few things you can give the players. I mean, you can give them more money, but that's not always under your control. Yeah. Or you can give them time off at times. You know, you can give them appreciation, you can value them. There's all of those things, but it's a very very easy extrinsic reward of a day off. Yes. You know. So what? How do the players greet that? You tell me. 
Oh, I think what, once you you've thrown that in, and and the odd time you've you've given me that look across, and I know what's coming. You're about to do the running. <laughs> We're about to do the running. So you know you've got players who've not played for six games who are now thinking, actually, I could benefit from training. Yeah. Even in the heart of heart of hearts, they're going to think, actually, I just need to train more. But now the manager's just chucked in you know, an extra day off. And don't get me wrong, everybody's happy about it. Um, but you get outside and I think everyone appreciates if, if you've had a good performance and that carrot's been thrown in. You know, I like to call it the carrot met- carrot. The carrot method. Easy for, to say. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Not even with drinking people. Um, but yeah, that, that carrot method of being able to hook onto that feeling, that enthusiasm and joy after. A, sometimes it's not even a win. It's a great performance. You've just come back from from the dead in a game, and you've you've pulled the result out of the bag, and you just know it's going to benefit everyone or you've been on a long run of games where you know everyone's feeling a little bit fatigued because despite maybe what people think that they're highly paid professional players and they should be able to just do it it is it is intense training and they're intense games and it is intense psych- psychologically so getting that little bit where it's, I suppose everybody listening would know that feeling when you should be at work, but you're not at work. I suppose in the in the normal world, you can throw a sickie in and you can sit at home and watch Netflix for the day. But it's probably an equivalent feeling to that that the players can just know that they can they can relax for an extra day. The training is going to be a bit more balanced the following week, you know, because they're not having to travel, they're not having to come in and do a session or whatever. It's just a it's a great way to bounce into the following week. And and as you said there, you know, when you're trying to just keep rolling in that enthusiasm from game to game when you're on a winning run, then it's perfect, you know. So we then know that at least from our perspective on the physical side, we go outside, we do some hard work and we box them off and then they'll see us on Tuesday as well. I think for all the gardeners out there, you just want to uh, just want to define that Dave's carrot method has nothing to do with the actual vegetable. So um, <laughs> just in case there's a little bit of confusion. Um, you yeah. know, everyone's out there going, wow, wow, I wonder what his carrot method really is. Does well, he water uh, it three times a day with, yeah, with it, it helps smart water? Smart water. Um, Other sponsorships are what does, what does he do? So, yeah, look, I think there's, there's little tricks, isn't there? You can't do that all the time because, of course players decondition and you know there's there's times to do it and times not to do it um you know you hear about international breaks don't you where if you win at the end of an international break it's quite an easy one we've done it before where we've kind of gone right you've got two days off yep and for every game you win in the next four you can have an additional game off so is is that just a motivational tool where you probably know you'd give them four days off anyway in in an intense period some managers rock in and i never understand this some managers rock in and go right is a week off or 10 days off. In my opinion, those managers are doing that for themselves to have time off because there's no way that that length of time off helps performance. You know, when you're a hot, when you're a, a finely tuned athlete, I'm not talking about us now. Yeah, obviously. I'm talking about the players. When you're a finely tuned athlete, you know, again, you have to train, you have to work, you know, two or three days off in a busy schedule. I don't think it's a massive problem, but you can't give, to, you know, you're having to start again afterwards. But but there's lots of little motivational tools, isn't there, in order to do it. It'd be really interesting to see what the top managers do because I, I, I've got a feeling they don't I mean do they do, do they still do these types of things do yeah, they still give yeah. it'd be interesting wouldn't it to, to see like a Man City or a Liverpool do they do they do the same type of thing or do they just are those players motivated because they're the top top professionals I, I, I think that the top teams they don't have any time to do no. four days off you know international breaks for them are all their players are internationals so they're going to be going away um, I suppose it's for the other teams that are maybe in the Premier League who haven't got so many players who are playing champ- well they're not in the Champions League you know they're not in the Europa League or Conference or any other the Wendy Fair League <laughs> Cup <laughs> you want uh, time off from that let, yeah, me, yeah. let me tell you Slough Town away and Wokingham Town that, that was tough oh, that was okay. tough on a Wednesday tough night tough places to go tough places yeah, to go yeah. that, that's going to be an, an additional series we'll do which is tough places to go yeah. um, but I suppose yeah they don't have that opportunity to do that time and their players are very much in flow we're actually breaking that is not good for them they just roll from game to game to game and as much as we talk about trying to 
manage players' load at least if there's consistency, there's predictability about it. So I, th- I think they'd probably err less on the giving random extra days off, you know, in blocks of two or three or four. Yeah. Um, that probably wouldn't work for them. But I suppose the only time they ever really get to do that is when it comes to FA Cup weeks and things like that, if they get knocked out early. So always suspicious of those people who get knocked out in the third round. It's never happened to us, of course. Obviously not. No, we, we, we usually came in on the first round. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the, about my time at Burton there. I suppose than... the, the carrot method um, is a uh, is a breakdown of the old carrot and stick method, but nowadays you can't really use a stick with players, can you? It doesn't really seem to work. I think it's changed. I think it has changed. And I think, you know, my, my, my theory on this, and I've spoken about this quite a lot previously, um, you know, in conversations, but <clears throat> my belief is we, we, you know, we used to, we, we, all of us older people, we grew up in an autocratic society, didn't we? Like your dad told you what to yes, do. Sir. Your mum told you what to do. You had a respect for the, the, the police. You had a respect for authority, you know, your school teacher. Yeah. And, the, and there was discipline involved. And that was just the way it was. Whether that was right or wrong, that was the way it was. So when a manager had a go at you, you were kind of used to it a little bit. And you'd learn to just take it on the chin, accept it. And then some players would go under even then. Some players would you know, have a little bit of a fight. I remember Sam Allardyce once when I was on loan at Blackpool um, at half time in a game, I came in and I thought I'd done all right. And he absolutely rinsed me. I'm talking like to the point where he laughed about it. <laughs> Two days later, he said, how angry were you when I did that? And he knew. And, yeah. he, and I, I realised at that point it was a really clever technique, but he knew that I would go, right I'll, show, right, I'll show you. And I was angry going out onto the pitch second half and I played as well as I played 45 minutes. Yeah. So it's good management. But I think nowadays, you know, players are just not used to that. And that, that's just the way it is. Society's changed. It's a very different world that we live in. And, and you know, for the benefit... Um, in, in many aspects of it, you know, that's a whole different debate. But so I think players now, you know, players now you have to go about it slightly differently. You have to try to positively reinforce a lot of their good actions. You have to try and get under the skin of the character and make them feel, I mean, that's, this, this is why the best managers are the best managers. You know, tactically, I think most people, you look at the Premier League now, a lot of teams are playing like Man City. Yep. So why do Man City win everything? You know, and of course the players and, you know, all of these things, the quality of the players. But I think the big factor is Guardiola gets his players loving the game. You know, he gets under the skin of his players. He just has this magical knack. So forget the tactics, forget everything else. From a, from a psychology point of view, he understands what makes players tick. And I think Klopp's the same. You look and you go, the players look like they love him. They, and that's a really difficult thing to do. So I think they're two very good examples of the way football changed. Now, I'm not saying they won't give a player a little bit of criticism, but I think that's massively, massively changed. And I think, um, you know, certainly over the last five or 10 years, we've seen that come into the dressing rooms that yep. we've worked in. You know, what, what, how do you see that from, from a performance perspective? Has that changed the way you would deliver sessions in terms of how you deliver it or, or has that never changed? No, I, th- I think you're now far, far more tuned into the fact that you're, you're a salesperson. You're, you're trying to sell whatever you need the players to do and keeping them on a, on a, on a positive keel so that everything's towards their benefit. You know, back in the day, I suppose where you could tell you're letting the team down by not doing something that doesn't really wash anymore with players. You know, it's, it, you now have to appeal to their inner sense of self and that ego where, you know, this isn't benefiting you. You're not getting the most out of yourself. So you're always having to kind of push that side with players. Um, of course, if you're maybe in a situation where you're you're Man City or you're Liverpool or you're a top team where you're winning a lot, I mean their challenge is probably more complacency than it is um, the challenge of maybe going from win to loss to runs of losses, and you know those are the challenging times when you're maybe losing a number of games. And now you're trying to get players to do stuff that they need to do. It's important for them to get back to a positive performance, either physically or or, or as a team. Um, 
I suppose that's the, that's the challenge, isn't it? How do you keep everybody? It's, it's easy to keep people doing the right things when things are going well. The challenge is how do you stop them falling away from stuff when things aren't going well, when they think that the things that they were doing before have caused the fact that we're now not winning, you know, because, you know, we've had it in the past where we might question the training or we question the strength and conditioning stuff we're doing in the gym or the travel, whatever it is, something, we're going to try and find something to blame for when we're not winning. But when, uh, when we are winning, like those things aren't getting questioned. We're not putting the same level of detail into are we traveling the right way? Are we eating the right foods? Whatever. But that's where that no excuses culture comes in, doesn't it? If you're losing games. So you have to, you know, for me, there's really easy ways of doing it. So so the way I would usually do that is you pick out, if you're, lo- if you're on a losing run, you pick out the good bits you're doing in games and you show that and show that and show that and keep showing the players it. You simplify the game and the messages as much as you possibly can. Again, you know, that's the... You know, when when managers lose dressing rooms, so to speak, if that's even a thing. But when managers do that, for me... Definitely a thing. Yeah. Well, Fans but, definitely believe that losing yeah. the dressing room is a thing. But if that is a thing, you know, it usually comes from different things, doesn't it? The team gets changed all the time. The formation gets changed all the time. The way of playing gets changed all the time. And that uncertainty for the players leads them to then start blaming all of the things that are outside their own control. Maybe that's... Maybe top... You know, I read a comment in the week, and I think it... Um, I think it came from Roy Keane that said the top players don't blame other things. They find a way to look or something around. They find a way to look within their own performance and do something about it. They don't need someone else to tell them. I can chuck in some sports science terminology here, which is it's a self-serving attributional bias. Oh, I like that. I like that. You're going to have to explain exactly Essentially, high performers take responsibility. Yeah, they look at themselves. They look at everything that's inside their control, and then they they move from that outside. Poor players or lower level, they're looking at the outside straight away. Who can I blame? What can I blame? You know, to take the pressure off myself, yeah. and that that's what separates these top players, really. And, and that's a chat. And I suppose that that marks a challenge because the reality is we haven't worked with those top players. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. so, but that's true, isn't it? So, so what do you do? Signing some of them. Like, what do you? Well, that's hell. I know. <laughs> recruitment. Blame recruitment. Recruitment. Um, yeah. Or blame the budget. So, but I think you're right, and I think what you have to then do is, you know, if you're if you're working with players at a you know, a championship level or league one level or whatever that is, you have to accept that some of those players aren't those top players. So how do you get the best out of them? And I think, again, you know, I think the going back to the carrot and stick method, you know, the carrot we've spoke about a little bit and, and different ways of doing that. Yeah. The stick to me now has changed. So the stick used to be battering a player, criticising them in front of a group, not in front of a group, whatever it was. Now it's, you know, there's such an easy way to do it now within the tactical framework of a team because it's, you know, look, I need you to do that. I need you to press better when we're playing against the back three. You know, this is, this is you're pressing from the inside where you need to press from the outside. Yeah. Look at your body shape. You need to do that better. You know, so there's a really easy way of almost shaping it as, it's not a criticism, but it's a, in order for the team to do what it needs to do and to function as well as possible, you need to help me to do this. That used to be, you know, basically, effing close, <laughs> close him down quicker, you idiot. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that, so, it's, so it's exactly the same, but it's just framed in a much more um, technical way to the player. You can show them clips now, whereas perhaps that was a lot harder to do back in the day. So I think, so I think, you know, that the, both the methods are still there. Both the methods are still, you know, you're never going to change those methods, are you? You know, psychology will call them so many different, different things, but essentially it remains the same. And it's just, you know, the best managers find the right moment at the right time in order to do it. Well, I think that's part one of an infinite series that we could go through of psychology of teams. So I'm sure we'll touch upon this again, probably in the very next podcast at some stage, we'll talk about psychology of the teams. But anyway, we'll um, we'll come back to that shortly. Let's get into some of the the major topics of this week, Gary. And it's certainly been another interesting week for football managers when we've seen another three managers go down 
all practically in the space of a few hours of each other. Uh, Monday was a little bit of carnage. Crazy, wasn't it? Um, I, yeah, I think the, the um, you know, I think I was in, my, my son was running Valencia Marathon. I was, I was, um, I was over there for three days and, and literally on the flight back, I landed, turned my phone back on, and it was Swansea of sat there manager. Um, who else had sat there manager? Sunderland had sat there manager. So Mowbray had gone, Michael Duff had gone. Um, and straight away, you're like, wow, that just sums up basically the championship on a two-hour, 15-minute flight. <laughs> Two people have lost their jobs. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, it probably highlights... Yeah, probably. I mean, it's interesting why the changes in the championship, isn't it? Because yeah, um, is. I, th- I think, I suppose, if you look at the Premier League, the Premier League, apart from the top teams who are fighting it out for for how high they can finish in the, in the European places, and, and I suppose, obviously, there's a massive financial pressure um, on, on where they finish and which competition they finish in. And there's a few down the bottom, isn't there? But there's probably three or four that know they're going to be in a relegation fight all season. So that probably hasn't changed too much in terms of their aims and ambitions. I don't see too many getting dragged into that. But the championship, it's like every team's playing for something. Every team's either playing to not get dragged down in towards the bottom three, of which you could argue there's probably 10 teams. Yes. And then you've got the teams that are trying to make the playoffs, of which you could argue is probably going to be about 14 or 15. In fact, probably more than that, because, you know, you saw it last season, teams like Coventry, you know, that were struggling around this sort of time and just went on a ridiculous run and got themselves in the mix. So, so yeah, I mean, that's why so many clubs are making such, not knee jerks, probably unfair because it's their money, it's their prerogative, but making quite feels like from the outside impulsive decisions. The following morning, then we see Paul Heckingbottom. He leaves his job at Sheffield United. And that's, strangely, the first Premier League management casualty of the season. So you've had nine different managers, you know, change roles as such in the in the championship, whether they're sacked or mutual consent or whatever the, the uh, situation might be. But in the Premier League, far, it seems far more stable. Is, is, is that because people have been given more time or... Is it go back to what you said that that maybe the teams are at the bottom, they give time to their managers because they've potentially just come out of the championship. They've earned the right to have a go and try and keep the team in the in the Premier League. Or is is there a different is there a different mentality or ethos going on at those clubs in the Premier League, which is vastly different to those clubs in the championship? I think there has to be. I think if you look at it, it seems almost counterintuitive to suggest that the Premier League's far more stable than the Championship because you wouldn't imagine it would be, would you? You know, you'd think the the the, the money's far greater and the riches are far greater to get into, you know, uh, the Champions League places, to get into the Europa um, Europa League, you know, to stay, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds to stay in the Premier League. So you'd imagine really that actually those um, clubs would probably be more impulsive. But but if you look at, you know, that, that that's what I suppose I'm saying. If you look at the actual teams within there, um, you know, I'm trying to get the Premier League table up as as we speak at the moment. And if this you look is, at this, this is t- live people, this is not yeah, this pre-recording. Is, this, is, uh, this is how we're gonna how we're gonna work. <laughs> we're gonna be trying try and be finger literally on the pulse, apart from the fact that I can't turn my iPad on. But if you look at the moment, you know, obviously Sheffield United have made the change um on the back of three straight defeats, you know, but you look at them and they're four points away from safety. So you can imagine for someone like them, they're thinking maybe we have to make a change. Harsh in some ways, in as much as, you know, they lost two of their best players uh, in the summer, you know, Sander Berger being one of them, yes. um, who went to a rival team. And they haven't really strengthened massively. So I'm not sure what their expectation is to stay in that division if you're not going to at least give Paul Heckenbottom the, ch- the chance to do that. And I think that's why they brought Chris Wilder in, because he knows the players. You know, he's not going to expect millions and millions of pounds to spend, or I'm sure he'd like that in January and probably need it. But he might just be able to galvanise them. You look at Burnley, you know, may- maybe Burnley are one, but obviously they're quite comfortable with company. It feels like they're going down a style of play that they're, they're, they're almost now wed to after last season's success and Everton, of course, with a points deduction, but I think we'll get out of it, you know, without me going through all of them, but you look at Luton, you know, they know they're going to be in a fight. So at this moment in time, even though they're 17th, fourth from bottom, I think Rob Edwards is doing a really, really good job in, in, in giving them that fighting opportunity. And then, you know, 
I would imagine Forrester probably one of those next ones maybe just thinking about what do we do. Other than that, more or less most of the teams are in and around, you know, apart from the likes of Chelsea, but are in and around where you'd expect them to be at this stage of the season, give or take one or two positions. So so I suppose there isn't that much surprise with a Premier League at this moment in time. And that's maybe why most of those clubs um, are sticking rather than twisting. And, and um, as you said, the championship's a very different, a very different beast. So on that, when you've had maybe periods where you've been in the in, in the Premier League and then teams come out of the Premier League and then they seem to then go on this run of potentially have been stable with a manager for a long time and then almost start to get into this, I suppose, hamster wheel of, of short-term management appointments, see if it works. If it doesn't work quickly, change again. You know, you look at the likes of, say, clubs, clubs that ironically we've been at, but Norwich have gone through since Daniel Farr came out of the Premier League. They've been through two managers already. Um, and then you look at someone like Stoke, who've, since they've come out of the Premier League, gone through four managers already. It, it, does the, the pressure to get back to the Premier League become so overbearing on these clubs that they have to seemingly act quickly? Is that at board level or would that be in the stands or, or is it a mix of all of those? I think it's a mix of all of those. I think most managers they lose their jobs with a combination of things, don't they? Um, you know, usually results dictate how people feel. Um, you know, when those results don't come over a sustained period, then often, of course, the fan base start to show their discontent and, yeah. and you know, understandably so, you're paying your money, um, you know, and, and, and there's ways to do it, I think, but, but, um, but I think that's getting more and more um, or, or getting more, not not impulsive, but it's getting quicker and quicker now. Used to be seven, eight games. Bad run now, it could be <laughs> yeah. two or three. You know, it could be two or three, or, literally. Or a bad half. Or, or a bad half, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Um, so, so I think there's that external pressure. I think that pressure then transcends to the boardroom or the owners. Um, and I think it all just starts to add to that melting pot. You can even put social media in there because a lot Absolutely. of... Absolutely. I would imagine a lot of clubs... Um, maybe not at ownership level, but certainly below that, have their hand on um, the pulse of social media and, and, and what the thoughts are of people. And I'm sure, obviously, they take into account the lack of balance at times um, with with opinion. But but yeah, so I think you know. And then you've also got style because that's a big thing at the moment. You know, this this you know everyone stylistically wants to um, be a possession based team, and which is which is quite an interesting debate in itself because if two teams are playing. There's only one that can dominate possession or one, only one that can have more possession than the other, of course, unless you've got 50-50. So, so if you ain't got possession, you need to be good off the ball as well. So I think there's a, there's a balance to that style um, for all clubs and, and maybe, you know, sometimes people perhaps don't understand that as much. But, but yeah, so it's a really difficult one. I think the championship, the championship is just... It's a different beast. It just feels like a different beast. If you look at it, you know, a lot of the Prem clubs, a lot of the top European clubs have a have a style of play, have a way, a philosophy throughout the club that maybe that, um, you know, you look at someone like an Ajax that predominantly, not at the moment because they're having a, a poor time, but predominantly have had a way of playing and a style of playing and they recruit the managers around that style. So they have a real good synergy. If you look at a championship, it can lurch from one type of manager to a different type of manager to a different stuff. And and it's just such a short-term animal at the moment, isn't it, in, in many, many ways. I, th I think you make a great point there around stylistics um, and maybe the communication of that to fans like, is, is obviously something clubs are trying to address now where certainly with sporting directors or whatever trying to say this is the way we're going to play and we're going to recruit a manager and we're going to recruit players around this style. However, if that style doesn't seem to be working either because the players aren't able to implement it or the manager isn't able to get it working with the players that he's got, does that then put like almost uh, an albatross around your neck as such that now you're identified as having to play a certain way, that way isn't getting you results necessarily that you'd you'd want or you'd foresee. 
is there an ability then to be able to suddenly go, well, I've got to find a way to just win games? And that might mean a complete lurch away from essentially what our club philosophy might be to what we need to get results. Well, I think the first thing is, and I think some managers are better than other managers at doing it. I think some managers can, you know, you can watch a game and think, they haven't played that well, really, but they've won the game 2 0. And the way to talk afterwards occasionally, and, and I understand it, is, is to really, really sell a style of play that actually, when you watch the game, probably hasn't quite transpired, but they've been very, very good at selling what they've told people they're going to produce. And, yeah. and of course, if you win 2-0, the amount of times we've won games and people have gone, oh, what an incredible performance. And we've actually analysed and gone, we didn't really play well. You know, and, and other games where we played really well for 40, 40 minutes, conceded just before half-time and lost the game 1-0 and everyone's battered it and we've gone, actually, we've probably played a lot better than last week. So un until you get that sort of objective, I think everyone reacts to the emotion of a game to a certain Absolutely. degree and, and that's yeah. what the game's all about isn't it so so I understand that <clears throat> I think the difficulty for me at the moment is you know when, when I see managers go in and I see everyone wants to try to say that they're going to play a possession-based style of football and and, and, um, and an attacking style of football and of course that's everybody's utopia you know if someone said to me you know, right, what's your preferred style of football? I'd say I'd love to be able to attack and score loads of goals and win loads of games. But there's a key. And never concede, of course. And you and have to win. But there's a key. You have to win loads of games. If yeah. someone says to me, the style of play is everything, and I, and I said, what? So I don't have to win games of football? No. Brilliant. I could play the greatest. You know, anyone can play play a style of football that's exciting. Whether you win or not, that is the that is the end product and the the balance of what good football is. You know, so so I think it's a really difficult debate, isn't it? Because there's going to be a lot of a lot of people go into clubs want to play an attractive style and a possession based style, but not everyone's going to win doing it. So some teams are going to have to try and find the balance between attacking play, that pragmatic defensive side in those transitions in the game and in those moments in the game. And, and not every team are going to be able to dominate the ball. Not every, You know, you look at teams up and down the country, um, you know, to me, Arsenal, Man City play a similar way. Villa play a slightly different way. Liverpool play a slightly different way. You know, Tottenham play a slightly different way. You know, Chelsea definitely play a slightly different way. Um, obviously not as successful as they'd like to be at the moment, but but they're a pacey counter-attacking side, you know. But equally, they're all good, in my mind, they're all good to watch. So I don't think there's one way of playing, but I think that the danger at the moment is people going into clubs, they have to almost extol this one and only way, otherwise it's not acceptable. acceptable. Uh, and like you said, Sporting directors are now doing that as well because they don't want people to associate them with um, with a different style of play. So it's really, really interesting times at the moment in football, isn't it? And and as we know, football moves in, in cycles. Um, and it'd be interesting to see whether this cycle stays or whether we move to, to something slightly different or teams start to move away. Well, I'm sure as the season goes on and the episodes keep rolling in, we'll come back to more sackings because they're definitely going to happen. But um, yeah, it certainly was a lively start to this week where we had uh, three in 24 hours but let's see what the uh, what the future makes of that right you've got to mark one player you're a centre half I know that's Difficult to imagine. Yes, imagine yourself, that. imagine yourself a Martinez style. Imagine yourself <laughs> Martinez style. Right, you're marking Harland or you're marking Harry Kane. Which one? Um, I'm taking Harry Kane. All right. Wow. Why? Yeah, I think Harland for me possesses more threats. He can score goals in just many more ways, and he's going to expose me for a lack of height and b lack of speed and probably c lack of ability. I don't think there's enough letters in the alphabet. To, to be able to quantify the amount of things that he has that I don't but certainly I just think Haaland's the ultimate he's like the unicorn centre forward isn't he you know so um, Harry Kane I probably think I'll be able to get close enough to it at some stage and kick him but I think Haaland will just bounce that off probably laugh at me when shoving my head into the ground and then still scoring Sounds familiar Sounds like our training says to me Okay, Gary, some 
questions back over the table at you. If you had to change a role in a football club, in the football department, what role would you change to? And you can't still be a coach or manager. Oh, that's very easy. Head of performance. <laughs> Easiest role in football. <laughs> just turn up and be the best best mates of the players. Um, tell them what you want to hear. Uh, you know, just if a matter, whatever happens, just say, well, look, you know, I wouldn't do that. But it's the manager's choice and I've got to respect him. Um, I would say to the player, I would, I, I would have picked you. You know, I would. I love you. You could probably tough saying that to all twenty-two players. You might have to like vary when you say that to them. Um, yeah, we 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 possess many different ways of blaming the manager. For stuff. <laughs> it's yeah. our own head language. Of per, head of performance as well. Actually, no, probably. Well, yeah, I was for a financial aspect as well, rather than just in it, like just. No, I'm going for. I'm still going for head of performance. The energy you're giving me right now, guys. I think it will be enough for my five next matches. Because if you were not here, guys, I would probably lose the match. So I want all of you to know, when you sleep tonight, I won because of you. We've done a lot of away games in our time. Is there any crowd that you've played in front of, that you've not managed in front of, but you've played in front of or managed in front of, that you thought their fans have the best banter chance? Oh, that's going to be difficult, that one. Um, because I might have to apologise to um, to Derby first because Forest, when I was Derby manager, Forest fans used to love it. They used to absolutely love it. And and um, I used to get the old, your trainers are shit, <laughs> your trainers are, yeah, because I don't know if I can swear on the podcast, but it's our uh, podcast. Gary Rower, your trainers are shit. Basically, that's what I used to get. And do you know what? It's funny because... I used to give them a bit of banter back. So I remember doing the post-match uh, and we'd drawn the game. So I knew yeah. neither team had won or neither team had lost. And they asked me about it. I said, well, look, you know what it's like. I said, this will come into fashion in Nottingham in about six months' time, probably. <laughs> and it was just me having a bit of banter. You know what? My argument is why can 20,000 or however many fans take the piss out of a manager yeah. and the manager can't have a little bit of banter back. Football's too serious. And, and for me, that was just a bit of fun. Of course, you get all the social media stuff saying, you know, Wow, it's an idiot and all this, but it's just a bit of fun. It's a just a bit of humour, and, and I thought that I, I enjoyed those interactions with the fans. Um, so I would say, in terms of humour, probably the Forest fans. To be fair, my mate Scotty, he is a Forest fan, and to this day, whenever I speak to him, he reminds me about your trainers on that day. So I don't know how bad they must have been, but for him to still be going on about either that or your response afterwards was was good banter and they, they took it the right way. Scotty will 100% be wearing those same type of trainers five years later out on a night out claiming he looks good. And and, and really, he'll, he'll, he'll know there's a subtle nod to, to my original style there. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give us a like or subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. We look forward to seeing you on the next show.